0: You're listening to the BH Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, BH has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at BNH.com or download the BNH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan Weitz. Greetings and welcome to the B&H Photography Podcast. Today's show is a special one. We're recording at the Robert Mann Gallery on West 26th Street, Manhattan, and speaking with Australian landscape photographer Murray Fredericks. Murray's landscapes can be found in the collections of numerous museums, galleries, and private collections, including the Museum of Sydney and the Elton John Collection, and his very first solo show opens in the United States at the Robert Mann Gallery and runs from February 1st, 2018 through April 7th, 2018. Don't miss it. Also joining us is Robert Mann, as in Robert Mann Gallery. As we walk through the gallery, we're going to be chatting with Robert and Murray about this remarkable series of photographs called Vanity. Upon first glance, it's clear that these photos are like no other photographs, and Fredericks possesses a visual signature that sets him apart from other photographers in the genre. I encourage you to go to murrayfredericks.com.au or robertmann.com or our landing page at BNH. to see the photographs we're talking about as you listen to this podcast. And stay with us toward the end of the show when we will be speaking with Hillary and Tim, the two winners of our recent b photography Canon 5D Mark IV sweepstakes. Now join John Harris and I as we speak with Robert Mann and Murray Fredericks. Murray, thank you so much for inviting us down today. We've been, for the past few weeks, we've been looking at these pictures on computer monitors. And to be here at the gallery and look at large scale prints, uh, is really, really impressive. And there's a lot of topics we could be talking about. You advise people to view your photographs not as records of a geographic location, but as a record of the space that happens to be occupying that landscape at that particular moment in time. Can you expand a bit on that?
1: Yeah, sure. Look, I think, Landscape photography really started with the pictorial. And it was it was very much enough for a landscape photograph to just to simply be a record of the scene. But photography's got to be more than that now. We've we've definitely moved beyond that. And for me, a successful landscape photograph has to be something that does something to the mind. It has to move beyond the landscape itself and beyond a straight, what I call there a geographic representation. So It's a big question that I've been asking myself, why have I been drawn to these sites and and to this kind of imagery for for now almost 20 years? And I I keep coming up with the idea that I'm chasing something. And for many years, I wasn't sure what that was. And I think with this series, I've started to realise that what I've been chasing is is a, a sensation or an experience or a feeling, something that happened to me when I was in a place like this without a camera. And I had this sensation walking off onto a salt plane in the middle of the night. And I just stood there. I stood in the emptiness. There was no wind, it was dead quiet. And I had this strange sensation, very beautiful sensation that somehow the physical boundaries of my body were dissolving into this space that I was standing within. And with that sensation came this huge sense of release. And I think since then, that's been the driving force. The, the question becomes, can that sensation be somehow represented in an image? It's very subtle and you've
0: captured it. And I think a lot of it has to do with the time of day, obviously. But yeah, it's a, it's a photograph of an atmosphere.
1: Of, of, it's almost well, spiritual. It, it, I've been going to Lake Eyre now since 2003. And originally I'd live in the middle of the lake for five weeks at the time. And what I was looking for was nothing. You know, the, the original question I asked myself was, what does nothing look like? Can nothing be represented in an image using the camera in a photograph? Of course it can't because there's, there's so much there. And that was the joy of, of finding that. But it's this search for nothing where there, should, there shouldn't be anything. And I, you know, I went there once and, and went there twice, went there three times, and the more I went, the more I realised there was to photograph. And I keep trying to shake this place off, but it's this, it's, it's, it's now become almost a riddle that I'm trying to answer. You know, when am I going to stop photographing nothing? I mean, the, the last time I went there, I went there with some mirrors, which just came up out of, the, you know, and that's what we're looking at right now. And I, I love that this stuff just keeps emanating out of this void, out of this, out of this emptiness.
0: Do these prints appear too small to you based on the scale of what you've been, fo- seriously. I mean, these are really large prints. They're, what, uh, uh, 40 by 60 maybe somewhere in that range? I'm, I'm just guessing, okay? But based on what you're describing, these are actually little tiny contact prints.
1: I've had other shows where um, uh, there's other images in the SALT series uh, that, are, that are panoramic images and they've been exhibited at five meters by by 120. Uh We had a show in London at Hamilton's Gallery and the whole show was essentially two images, two five metre images opposite each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we've experimented with, with that. But there's, look, there, there are practical limitations in the medium um, and I tried to get around those practical limitations once with a vi- huge video installation we did uh, in Sydney. Uh, in, in a huge hall, and, and there we had a 5 metre by 7 metre transparent screen in a dark room. And it, w- it was fantastic. So, look, playing with scale, you know, I think that's the question you raise. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, what, yeah, what yeah. is the right scale? I think in this space, this, these, these one metre 20 by... Oh, yeah. I think, in this space, they're perfect. Yeah, in, a, yeah. in a certain sense, I want to see them even bigger.
2: Sure. Regarding this idea of trying to represent nothingness, or the space itself, um, or the feeling that you had, when did the, the idea of the mirrors come in? And, and did you try other avenues to find that, that feeling, to represent that feeling?
1: And in 2016, when this series was shot, I was done with Lake I Air. Was, I was feeling like a typecast actor. It was time to walk away. <laughs> and I came up with this new idea. I was going somewhere else. It was a, it was a bunch of night work. And, and luckily, it was the same techniques. I had the same cameras. I had my car loaded. I was ready to go and it rained, and it rained heavily. Now, rain in the Australian desert can be a rare thing. It can go for eight, nine years without proper rain. So it rained just as I was going off to do something else, and I thought, you know what? Lake is now perfect. So I may as well go there. Sooner or later, there's gonna be a book. I'm I'm just gonna go there. I'm not gonna waste my time, and I'm gonna add to the series that we've already got. And it'll be fun. I'll, 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 I'll just treat it as a bit of fun and I was sitting with a friend having a coffee who was a graphic designer and and he said, what are you going to see there? And I said, well, actually the reason I'm going back is is when there's been just this much rain, not too much, not too little, you end up with a 10 kilometre wide puddle that acts like a giant mirror. And that word mirror stuck in my head. And by lunch I'd ordered Two mirrors from a set builder to be made because it just never went away and I, I thought put a mirror in the mirror. Now what I originally thought I'd be doing was working with this idea of infinity and I got two mirrors, dragged them out into the middle of the lake and I reflected them into each other and I was doing that hall of mirror thing and as soon as I took the first shot and looked down the lens I, I realised it was it was not going to work. It, it was a gimmick. So I moved one mirror away and the angle of the mirror that we see now here I, was where it was sitting, and I looked through the lens, and there was something in the geometry. And I noticed that at that angle, the physicality of the mirror, the mirror as an object, disappeared, and it just left light and colour. And that was when the penny dropped. So I walked away seven kilometres, went back, had dinner or breakfast or wherever, whatever the time of day it was, and then started working on that. Well, I think it's important to note that Murray had to drag all of this gear through what,
0: about two kilometers of mud before you got to this spot? I mean, it's kind of funny to watch it. There's some great videos of you trekking across this barren landscape of salty muck with all this gear. I I will never complain again about climbing a hill with a bag of cameras on my shoulder ever again.
2: Um, Are Are these all relatively the
1: same spot? Within the league, or do you? So there was there was two trips. Uh, there was we, we were very lucky with the rain. It happened twice. Once in once in in, in winter June in Australia, and then again at, at the start of summer in October. Uh, so I actually use uh, NASA satellite imagery, which is available one hour after it's taken every day. So it's it's free. I, I get online and I can see where the puddle is in this giant void. So the lake itself is 70 kilometers by 150 kilometers long. Um, now, the salt and everything exists in about one, maybe 20 kilometer by 50 kilometer area, uh-huh. and, but, the, but the water gets blown around like a tide. Oh. So I use that NASA imagery to see where the, where the, where the puddle is. And it's, it's, look, the advantage of coming back to a subject like this over 15 years uh, is that I know where the access points are. I get a lot of help from, the, I mean, it's, I've never seen another person out there. It's it's on private land to, to the lake itself is public, but access is the problem. Uh, and I know how to access the, the various points where the water is and then out I go on the bike or, or with a trolley and drag the stuff out into the center. Now you
0: started this, this project using an 8x10 camera, which is pretty serious. That's a lot of detail, and it's a perfect vehicle for capturing this sort of imagery, because the subtleties in here are amazing. And by the way, looking at the prints, there's so much more going on than you ever see on a computer monitor, even the best monitors. The detail, they're they're sensual, they go really, really far. (laughs) They're they're much deeper than the images you see on the screen. Now you started with an 8x10 camera, and you ended with a digital camera, a medium format camera, an Alpa with a digital back on it. Now, they're both extreme high quality, yet they're two very different vehicles to work from. What are the pros and cons of each of them?
1: And I imagine there are
0: pros and cons.
1: Look, one of the the great things, I, I think it's great that happened over the span of this project is that Is that we went, photography, we, as photographers, went through this whole technological change. You can read, you know, it's an interesting point point you raise, you can read a history of photography through its technological changes. Mm -hmm. You know, who had access to it, what the imagery looked like, what imagery became available over time. Um, And and in some ways, I think I was very lucky to straddle this this whole change. one of the advantages of going back to this place, which was just a flat white pan and a horizon and a sky, was that a vet with, with just a single medium, just the 810 originally, it got to a point after about six or seven years where I was looking through the viewfinder and going, done it. There's nothing, you know, it, and I thought that's the end of the, that's the, end of the show. That's, that's where this project ends. And then I started thinking... It's space that I'm trying to convey, or more importantly, this emotional sense of space, the intersection of the human mind and space. That's what I'm really trying to get across. So I started to think, well, what about what's happening outside of the, what's happening to the left and right of the traditional 810 frame? And the very first thing I did, I tried, I mean, it cost, cost an absolute fortune, but I tried to do panoramic stitches with 810 now, I mean, we all know how much that co- that's To a young artist, which I was at the time, that was prohibitively expensive. And then suddenly digital came along. Now the early DSLR digital did not have the quality at this, at this scale to hold a wall. So it, it was no good. But then medium format digital came along and suddenly I could work panoramically. So the project then naturally progressed through a technical change I was able to start capturing imagery that I wasn't able to get before so the tech the technical the, the the process is not the point the process allowed more imagery different imagery to be captured and I think that's one of the things about photography is is where the technical and the you know we, we have to work with with both of them right. the photographer is melds the the, the technical reality with the, with the underlying conceptual, you know, creative force. Are you going back to 810? So I, I still work on 810. Ah, oh, okay. Because the one thing digital's not doing yet are long exposures. So there's a, there was a series, there was a component to this mirror series uh, which involves seven, five to seven hour nighttime exposures and digital's still not doing that. So some of the listeners are probably gonna have techniques of doing, I mean, I've seen them. I know there are techniques of of stitching together star trails all the way along. What I'm interested in doing is leaving the shutter open for seven hours, and as far as I'm aware, there's still not great technology at this scale, certainly on medium format, that will give us prints of this scale without noise inhibiting the viewer's experience. Okay,
0: let's let's take a walk over to this one photograph, uh, one of the pictures you have here with uh, star trails on it.
1: So this particular image we're looking at was a somewhere between a five to seven hour exposure. And as far as I'm aware, there's still no higher quality way to do this than on film, and particularly than on 810 film. So during this whole phase of shooting with the mirrors, which was two month long shoots in June and October of 2016, every single night we're out there that wasn't cloudy, I had uh, two 810 cameras uh, and a uh, 4 5 running as a backup. <laughs>
3: I'm sorry, that, the idea of having
1: a 4x5 as a small format backup, I love. Yeah, that's yeah, great, yeah. I like
3: that.
0: That's, that's, that's great, thank <laughs> you. So, <laughs>
1: so um, out, of, out of all those images that were taken every night, we there, there's three that actually worked. And it, it's it's... Um it's it's a real effort in in visual in visualization, trying to visualize which way the arcs are going to go. I mean, one of the things with digital is you get to see straight away. But uh-huh. with with you know, with this old, old in inverted commas technology, you're still working on that wonderful skill of pre-visualization. And and this was technically challenging, like trying to work out which way the, the, the stars would arc uh with the camera face that way, and then which way they'd, they'd appear inverted in the mirror. Um, and I think in the end, I could actually visualize in, th- in in 360 degrees which way the the stars would arc, and then I could get a compass out, and, or a GPS these days, look at the direction that was facing, and then visualize the way they're gonna arc in the mirror. And some of them, most of them just didn't work. But we got we got three. But this was 98%, of. The, I mean, this, this is, it's an effort thing as well. This nighttime work was 98% of the effort, I reckon. Getting the gear out there, getting the tripods, the, the 810, the slides, cleaning it all in the salt, all that kind of stuff. How deep is the
3: water that you're standing
1: in? So the water is, two, is uh, say, two to three inches to a foot, mm-hmm. to, to 12 inches deep. So that in itself is challenging. You're spending all that time
3: in wetness. How do you yes. keep your equipment uh, from being corrupted?
1: Yeah. This water is 10 times saltier than seawater because of the concentration. Right. It's a completely saturated salt solution. There's no limit to the amount of salt that can, it, it'll dissolve until it's saturated because there's a meter and a half of salt on the ground that, that gets soaked up into the water. Um, if and you fall in that, you're pickled.
0: Look, you're, you, <laughs> well, do, essentially pickled. you do fall.
1: I'm sure there are photographers listening who understand this. We, we all fall and the camera gets get we all know how to fall with our bodies and keep the camera dry. Yes, you know that that happens a lot out out there.
0: Now even just casual contact with this because again, it's this is highly corrosive, everything around you, even just the air probably has a lot of sodium molecules in it. Did you have any mechanical failures or any kind of technical issues that you had to deal with
1: with with everything except the cameras? So, the, uh, the, phrase, the phrase that I kept in my head is optical pathway. That's all that matters. Keep the optical pathway clean. Everything else is disposable, unfortunately. Um, but look, at, on a practical level, we, I dragged a picnic table that I bought at the supermarket with the mirrors. I tied it on the back of the mirrors. That whole thing went on and we set up this picnic table I used it again on the camping trip I went on with my family over the summer, it's, it's still going. It's, it's, it's a good picnic table,
0: <laughs> most high-tech,
1: sometimes the cheapest things last for years. <laughs> no, we had that. The, the, the other technical issue we had with the salt, the main one was the mirrors, keeping the mirrors clean. So that's what the problem was, the, the mirrors had to be perfect.
0: Oh, that's another interesting thing is that in, when you're looking at these photographs online, again, even on a really good monitor, um, you don't pick up... The, the mirrors seem to just be reflecting general images, but when you're looking at them here in print form, a lot of the textures on the mirror are, are really fascinating as reflections of what's going on, mm. and you don't get that otherwise. It, it, it's a terrific uh, experience. You describe yourself not as a photographer but as a visual artist. And I get that. And these photographs, when I look at them, I think illustration. And some of the pictures that you have here, I'd say about half of them in general, remind me so much of airbrush renderings. And I'm not saying that in a derogatory way, but if you were to stand here and look at some of the sharp edges, especially with the mirrors where you have dark blue going into light blue with the edges of the reflection and the real thing, It looks like an airbrush
1: rendering by a
0: very good
1: airbrush technician. So, what what you're raising is is a really, really important point. Uh, Photography is so bound up in truth. It's so bound up in the assumption of truth. And I think everyone wants to know, has it been photoshopped or has it been manipulated? has my understanding, my belief in the truth of photography, and I'm not saying it is, I mean, there's, that's years and years of PhD and masters and, and, and studying about the truth of photography. But whether we believe photography is true or not, the average viewer has this underlying assumption about the truth of photography. We wanna know if this is real. To me, what you just said is probably one of the best compliments you, you could give me, and we, we were, so we being myself in the printer more than any other series that I've done so careful to only use uh, the digital part of the process uh, in the creation of the, of, of the Final print in the balancing of the tones the contrast the thing you know the, the way we would have printed in the dark room in the first place right. the reason I brought a friend out and created the behind-the-scenes video that I think you've you've seen and that's online if the viewers want to go and have a look at.
4: Highly
0: recommendable.
1: Is that I wanted people to understand that these things were not created at my desk, that they're not graphic design, they're not illustrations. And you can actually go in there and see the live video, or sorry, the, the, the video that was captured while we were doing this, and, and hopefully recognize some of the same qualities. I think some of the airbrushing sense that, that you may feel is long exposure. So uh, occasionally when there was chop on the water, as in there was a bit too much wind, Mm -hmm. um, then I'd throw on an ND filter and and push the exposure out to 20 or 30 seconds to smooth that out. So that's also going to give that- That's part of the atmospheric
0: effect, And also the fact that you're you're, you're photographing, you know, at dawn and dusk, where where you get that pastel-y Miami look to things. Yes, absolutely. So that also adds to the airbrush uh, effect.
1: One of the challenges for me was, was, I guess, not making it look too pictorial. You know, it's, it comes out very colourful it comes out very colourful in a thing, but these colours are actually very restrained. It's just that they're very pure. Yeah. So our scent, the way we perceive the colours comes uh, come, comes in very, you know, as as if they're very strong, but if you were actually to sit there and measure those blues and, and those reds and everything else you know, on a monitor, they're, they're probably a quarter of the saturation that you'd see in a normal commercial image. It's just that it's, they're so clean. The, the colours are so clean. One of the reasons all these images were shot pretty much um, within 20 minutes of the, sun, the, the sunset and then 20 minutes or 20 minutes up to sunrise was because any direct light on the mirror revealed its dimensionality. It revealed the glass as object. Ah, okay. So direct sun or direct moonlight. So I did a lot of these nighttime images that we're looking at here with the star trails. I did quite a few with with moonlight as well. They all got thrown away because any point source of light revealed the edges of the glass. But in the soft light, in in the blue hour, or the, the blue hour and golden hour just shooting there, It just became a plane of light. And then light became the material. Light became the experience itself. And that's what I'm aiming for with these images. We can do a little bit of a segue, Rob. And I want to ask
0: you a question. You represent some of the finest photographers we know, um, living and not living. And amongst these photographers are other landscape shooters, obviously. How do you compare Murray's work to others? What, What made his work stand out to you Because, again, you see see a lot of pictures day in and day out, and I imagine it takes something to make your eyebrows go up. Mm -hmm.
3: Murray's work, I found transporting right from the get-go. It got me out of my head. There's, uh, and you're right, I've worked with many photographers, even one or two that you could say have come close to doing something like this in their work. I'm thinking Richard Misrach off the top of my head. Okay. Um, But Murray's work straddled a... A new line for me uh, it, it it transported me it's there's a surrealness to to the images there is this quietness about them that gets me out of my head uh, it kind of it, it turns the noise down completely and there 's plenty of noise right now in all our lives more than ever before uh, and I and maybe it was about the timing with that as well but I just I experienced landscape in a whole new way with, with this Vanity series that Murray has done. It's, it's something that I've never felt in, in any of the other artists and other works that I've had before. Um, and I think it's that, that I'm, I call it a sort of surrealistic experience that the, the mirrors offer. Uh, these objects placed in a very quiet, calm landscape, they, they have a transporting effect on, on me and on hopefully on other viewers that no other object that I have ever seen in a landscape, either that was there organically or was placed in there by the artist, has ever done before. So, I mean, it was for me, it it was a fabulous fit and sort of continuing a dialogue about landscape that I've always been interested in since I began with Ansel Adams, you know, back in the 1970s and sort of morphed into becoming involved with many landscape artists, including uh, the new topographic artists and people who who were looking at the landscape in a very kind of cluttered way, uh, this this is, is sort of another essential element to my progression in just l- looking at pictures and be wanting to show pictures about the planet we live on. That's that has a whole new
2: voice. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the decision-making process to to bring in a newer artist in, in your case for the gallery, Michael Kenna, you know Chip Hooper, other you know uh, landscape artists whose work you might describe as minimal, minimalist, but was there any kind of decision to say, well, this is different from us. There's big, you know, they're big, they're colorful, they're minimalist. Was it a, a risky decision or does that, you know, this is perfect for us? Well, uh, actually, you mentioned Michael Kenna, and he is, I believe, our segue, right? I mean, he, he was our,
3: our, he made the introduction. Um, and he's a dear old friend who I've worked with for uh, probably over 30 years by now, but.
1: Um, Can I, I, I have to say. Yeah. Michael, Michael Kenner, when I was a student, was an absolute hero. He, 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 one of his early books that he released and had the nighttime work with the, he turned these subjects, the, the chimney stacks and uh, the power station work and, and yeah. kids' playgrounds and things like that, he turned them in, he turned the landscape into something that went far beyond the, the literal subject matter. And that's something, that's where we started this conversation in the first place. Yeah. I was, got invited to a festival, photo festival in Columbia. Um, earlier this year and I shared a taxi ride from the airport with a guy called Michael and uh <laughs> it wasn't an, and he was a lovely guy and he was in English and, and Australian humor and we bantered all the way to the airport And I just want to oh, hear this, this guy's and everything and when he signed Michael Kenner at the uh, at the hotel, I almost fell over. <laughs> I met my child. I'd, I'd met my you know. I'd, I'd met my hero. And uh, no idea. No idea. That's incredible. So that's where that came from. He was on our show about a year and a half ago. He's a wonderful uh,
0: guest, and we we all we all love his work. He's terrific. Mm-hmm. It's Absolutely. good. The
3: process of making the decision to. To, to take someone is not as complicated as it might seem. It's it's really I hate to say it's just simply sometimes something you feel in your gut. Um, there is the concern that you're not taking on an artist whose work um, overlaps with another artist that you have. Uh, that it's adding something new and different to the program, but it's also not so far out in left field that it's going also be going to be like the strange you know stepchild. So it, there has to it has to be like a good fit for the family and and. There was no question right from the beginning uh, that Murray's work was gonna be a good fit. Um, and as I said earlier, that this, there was something new and different about the way he was looking at the landscape. And it, it, it seemed like an absolutely essential new voice for the gallery to have and, and to continue our dialogue with the public. And, but for me, it was so visceral. It was just something I felt right away from looking at the pictures. And mind you, that was on the digital screen where you cannot possibly get a true sense of what these pictures can, can do to you, how they can stir you up. I mean, the, 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 the screen flattens it, and you know, I, anyone listening to this, I, as you had said earlier, they really need to experience these prints in person. They, they just do not translate uh, their magic to uh, a computer screen.
0: They look awesome on a good screen. They look, they look well awesome. beyond description. Here, yes. I mean, they, you 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 just get stuck. You you
1: stand and you just stare. They, they do. They're they, yes, them. they really are. Can I ju- can I jump in there about yeah. this? It's, it's a different medium. This, you know, yeah. it, 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 it is. It's a completely different medium, and it condenses colour. Um, I, I actually had experience early in my career, early with the, with the with the salt series, the, this series before I introduced the mirror. And I'd go and see gallerists trying to get shows and, and you wouldn't even get through the door, they'd reject. And I, there was one gallerist I saw, years later, showed them exactly the same work but brought prints. And they said, oh, you, your works really improved. It was the same work. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, I, I think, look, some work works, some, some images work on screen, some images yes. work in the gallery, some work in a book. It, it's. Uh, the, that's, that's the role of the artist and the photographer's, uh, photographer, is to find the best medium or mediums. Speaking of mediums, just
0: a question for you. What printer are you using and what paper surface is this?
1: So this is um, Hannah uh, Hun- 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 H- Hun- mule photo rag. Yeah, I love it. I, I mean, w- when this was first released, it, I, I remember it, it was really liberating being able to print on this. You know, w- what was essentially 16th century technology with a with a, a film on the front that accepted modern pigment inks. Yeah. Uh uh-huh. You know, and and it, it just does something. It softens the gradations and the colours, but keeps that photo reality there. And the printer, uh, the, the 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 well. I know you don't mean, uh, I know you're asking about the technology, but the printer. The brand, the printer. The, it's, it's, it, I'm, I'm assuming this is inkjet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's an Epson printer, but more importantly, it's the person that I'm working with. Oh, the person okay. at the controls. I, I work with a guy called Warren Macross in, in, in Australia, yeah. and he is, you know, I, I call him the Zen master. He, he gets inside your head. He doesn't bring anything to the process other than wanting to get your vision out onto the paper. That's much more important than whether it was inkjet or pigment or, you know. Points, points <laughs> taken, points okay. taken.
2: Were the decisions on the size of the print and, and the type of paper and even the way they are mounted uh, in the glass, was that something that the decisions had been made prior to the gallery show or were they made specifically for this gallery show and was there a collaboration at all or did you no, just they, say... No,
1: these are part of a the series, the, the whole SALT series... The, the, there's a point where, where materials are freely available and then it becomes oversized and then you get into problems and all, all that kind of stuff where you've got to bring in joins in the imagery. So very early on in, in the 810 part of the work, say so 2005 to 2009, uh, a 120 high by 150 wide uh, became uh, a fairly standard size. I wanted, because it was a series, I wanted uniformity. So I, I picked that size. The panoramas have generally been 120 high, so that it, when they sit in a gallery, it doesn't upset the, the, the visual flow mm-hmm. as well. So yeah, those those sizes are largely predetermined. And the maximum sizes were also worked back from the, the paper sizes that were available at the time. So all that's taken into consideration and you, you end up with a happy.
2: And can you speak a little bit about um, the decision on the images that you chose? Uh, are, there, are there others available, uh, maybe even uh, I, I would say it was a collaboration. Uh, we wanted Excellent. to
3: have a nice uh, cross section, let's say, of what these pictures can convey, and you know, in terms of the different palettes and the, the one of the star trails, uh, pictures that are lighter, darker. Um, so yeah, we wanted to, we wanted to carefully p- pick a nice cross-section that gave a good overview and also realizing the limits to what the space can hold and also how strong and, and you know the, each piece is and how much space it needs to command uh, around itself. Uh, we're, uh, Murray's. This work has been shown previously, we're not the first gallery although it's the first time in the United States and so there are additions and some of the works have been shown in Australia, they've been shown in, in the UK and so we also took uh, that into consideration where the editions may have been already partially sold or nearly sold out, uh, we wanted to introduce the work to the American market where they were still at the early stage of the edition.
2: And is there a, a book uh, in the future? or?
1: Something? I keep, I, I keep, it, it, it's back to this thing about being typecast in the Salt series. The day the Salt series is finished, there's going to be a book, but I keep adding chapters to the book.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so you really
1: consider this as part of
2: the whole salt series that w- with the vanity aspect of it, the As- mirror.
1: Absolutely, and I, I look at this and say, "There's no way I could have got to this point without the 15 years' work that, that came before it."
2: And one question you, you discussed uh, or mentioned uh, reflections off the mirror and the way that changed the way the mirror fits within the this, within the image itself. Um, uh, how would you say, how many failures, if that's not the right word to use, but how many the images, right okay, well, then how many failures would you say you, you, you had, and how many images did you shoot during one session compared to
1: what turned out to be images you
2: uh, collected? Uh,
1: that, 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 that question's a great question, and I, I think it, it leads to the, the question of process when I'm shooting, and when I'm shooting, I'm really careful to divorce um, as much, even though it's an emotional end that I'm trying to get to, I'm trying to divorce my emotional experience at the time that I'm shooting. I'm, I try to stay very dry and methodical. Um, th- there are moments when when I'm involved, and there are moments when I'm not. But often, it's so you're so. T- it, th- this, these are these lovely, beautiful things now hanging in a, yeah. a gallery in New York. But really, when you're shooting, it's. Often there's no, you, you're tired, hot, cold, some, something covered in salt, you, you want to eat, and it just becomes this methodical, what I call, data collection. You know, that's a, 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 an, an intensely dry term that I put into my head to divorce my emotion from the process while I'm shooting. So I'm still going, like, there's still a part of, 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 the, of, the, of the brain that's going, the shot's there, the shot's there, that looks incredible, I'm, I'm open to surprises and changes and everything else. But the reason I do that is if you, it, it gets rid of the preconceptions. I think one of the struggles with, with someone working, with, with any landscape photographer who's working with found um, material is you bring your preconceptions to it, and your preconceptions can blind you to what's actually there. So that's what I'm trying to devo- I'm trying to shut that part down, collect the data, and then bring the emotion back in when I'm assessing the data at the end. So at the time, they're not really successes or failures. It's just data collection. And then, the tr- like, like making a film, the true meaning comes out in the editing process. You know, that's, that's when you find out what you've done. How do
2: you compare that,
1: that feeling of data collection and that, let's say, the game phase, that
2: working mode, to the, the feelings that you discussed earlier where you're just in the space and everything else is dissolving around you? Yeah. How, how do you bring those two together to
1: have a coherent idea? Funnily enough, those experiences happen either side of the shooting phase. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, they're momentary things. It's... It, One of the most powerful experiences I had out there was early in the process. I was a poor student when I started this work. I took a loan to get the A10. GPS technology back then was beyond what I could afford. Now, nowadays, everyone has a GPS. I was on a compass, and I didn't, I, I didn't used to camp in the middle of the lake right at the start, so I'd walk in and out, and I started doing night work. And I had to go out on every time the moon rose or set, and I had to go out an hour, wait an hour after sunset and an hour before dawn. And it was horrible. I mean, over three weeks of that one particular trip, I was just in and out, in and out, in and out, wasn't sleeping, was probably um, four or five hours of travel a night on the bike. One night I left the compass behind and I didn't realise until I got out to the camera and then had to turn around and go back. Now this place is flat. There are no landmarks, there's absolutely no... 360 degree of horizon, right? Yep, yep. and, <laughs> and I, had, I had an hour's ride back to go and I had nothing, no compass with me. So I, I remember I rem- in, in, in the southern sky, southern hemisphere, we've got the southern cross and there's a way that if you go five times the pointer's distance and drop it straight down to the horizon, that's due south. So I did that, right, I, I measured. I knew that was south. I knew that the camp was slightly left of south, so I went dead south until I got off the lake and then came all the way back around. Now I had no light, no navigation, no thing, and I was walking completely alone in silence, there was no wind. And I should have felt fear, but in that moment I felt so relaxed and I felt such a part of the sky, the the ground and, and the whole experience and and I remember thinking whatever I'm feeling now is way more important than the photography <laughs> so it's those feelings it's that it's those sensations that happen around the photography that then guide the whole process if you like they it forms the underlying motivation and then the rest is work you know it's you're not in that You're not in that emotional state the whole time. You can't, you go crazy, you can't live there. They're just moments, but they're powerful moments. They serve as beacons, they serve as guiding lights. That's how the work ends up looking like it does now, but the rest is work. Were you tethered? Were you shooting tethered at all? When you were shooting digital? Nothing,
2: so you didn't see any images until you went
1: back home Uh, and took. The the images now come, well, you, you take the shot and it comes back up on the screen. There think, is a screen. Uh, yeah, uh, there's
2: a screen on the back of, uh, of...
1: And what was the digital back? Uh, phase one. Yeah. Phase one. Yeah. yeah, there's a couple of different phase ones. Yeah. All right. All right.
0: So. So, question I've been... Uh, while doing homework uh, uh, to, to familiarize myself, I uh, stumbled upon First Footprints, which is like 26, 28-minute long time-lapse video. It's as mind-boggling and dazzling as your still work, and it's totally different. And we were talking a little bit earlier you're only able to shoot three days a month for a short period of time at night during half moon, and it's the most unearthly landscape video I've ever seen
1: in my life. Can you talk a little bit about that? So, First Footprints is a documentary series. Okay. Uh, There was, uh, which which I was on as the time-lapse DP. Uh, There was only three people involved in the production, and it was uh, basically the, it was a four-part series on the prehistory of Australia, the peopling of Australia. So from 60,000 years when the first people came across from Asia until Captain Cook turned up. And they told the history of Australia through uh, elders' oral stories, rock art carvings, um, and archeologists and and scientific evidence. Uh, Most of the uh, archeological, information the the rock art the carvings and everything most of it had never been recorded before Uh, and because it was so subtle it had to be shot by moonlight with a black sky around it so that you could actually get get enough contrast into the uh, you know into these engravings some of which were 40,000 years old. What's interesting is that when looking at this it's you think you're looking at daylight, but
0: the stars are in the sky, and that's what totally confused me. And it was really just a balance of half moon is just the right al- enough illumination that would time lapse. It appears to be
1: daylight, but
0: it's not.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the same thing happens in in film photography. It's the same equation in, in still photography. I mean, time-lapse photography is, is time-lapse videography is much better suited to still photographers. Uh, than to videographers because well, this is essentially right here. There's, this not,
0: this time lapse at night here is a time lapse movie, but in one frame summed sure. up. That's really
1: sure. all it is. And look, um, thinking this way, my the, the whole lighting, every lighting decision is made around moon phase, either no moon um, or just the right amount of moon t- to balance the landscape. As soon as you get up to half moon, it's, as you as you set out, it starts to look like daytime. The stars are still there. As soon as you get a fraction over, over half moon, the stars start disappearing altogether. Full moon, you can only see a couple of planets in so the sky. you really work within thin slivers of time yeah.
0: in many, many ways. I have one more question, if, if you want, okay? And that is that you started, off, you, have, you started off as a photographer with zero training, as a photographer, from what I understand. Yeah. And then you said, I'm going back to school and you've since got two degrees in photography. Yeah. Has it changed you at all, the way you approach photography? Absolutely,
1: absolutely, yeah. So um, essentially self-taught, did the physics of optics uh, in in science at high school, which was great, great grounding, but never got trained as a photographer. I did apprenticeships, uh, which I think is still the best way to learn. Sure. Um, And then when I'd started exhibiting, uh, I I think we were in the height of, in Australian art anyway, we are in the height of postmodernism. And, and I was getting the, you know, you start to visit exhibitions and, and I'd read these broom notes that were just impenetrable. And it really frustrated me that I did, had no idea what this language was that I was, that I was reading. And, and I, th- I thought, I've got to go to school. You know, I've, I've got to un- get a handle on this and, and understand it. Or well, at the time, I thought, I've never you know, this is what I thought at the time, I don't agree with it now. I thought I wouldn't be taken seriously. So off I went to school. Now... I'm not. I'm not going to come down on, on 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 the the language of contemporary art. That's not my place. The positive stuff that I pulled out of school was learning the history of my medium, and that had more effect overnight on what I was shooting than anything else. So at the time, I was shooting Zone System, Ansel Adams, black and white, medium format, four five, uh, and it was great formative work. And I was doing an apprenticeship with someone who revered that school and was exhibiting that school. But I suddenly realised that people like Paul Strand were avant-garde at the turn of the century. You know th- that kind of work was that's that's when it was it was new and people were interested in it. And and I started to think that what I was involved with at, at the time was maybe a fetish. You know, like like that's that's where it had gone to historically. And I literally stopped, and I fell in love with a bunch of. Uh, I fell in love with a bunch of American photographers actually um, who were working on 810 and, and working with colour negative. We worked with transparency in Australia, with color, no one worked with colour neg anyway. And it just jumped me forward and I, the very first series I, I, I stopped doing the, the literal black and white landscapes and I just suddenly went, what am I interested in? What's my central core? What's my concept? And you're now looking at it 17 years later on the wall. Okay. Yeah.
0: Well, for whatever it's worth, when John suggested doing a show on you, my first question was, did he go to college? Because if he didn't, I'm not interested.
1: <laughs>
5: <laughs> so it's paid off. It's paid off. <laughs> <laughs> definitely has. Definitely or, has.
2: Any of the the, photo- the American photographers, can you mention
1: any names? Oh, about... ab- ab- absolutely. Um, I mean, Stephen Shaw... Uh, Abs- absolute hero, lo- local hero. You know, I-, I can't wait to get to MoMA and see his show. I didn't get there yesterday. Um, Miserach, funnily enough, I-, I came across his work when I was already, sh- you know, shooting this stuff, but I- 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 obviously just kindred spirit, yeah, you know, right there. Um, also, at the same time, there were the, the, the American photographers. The Dusseldorf School uh, is still the school. You know, the Beckers.
0: Yes, oh, I love
1: their work. I mean, the, the, the Beckers formed the basis for me taking this serial approach that I've got now. I mean my work doesn't look anything like their work. But I, I just fell in love with with what what they'd done with their whole career. The way they took the same image in the same light and just slightly altered the subject again and again and and you know, it's not about the gas tanks. Although they might say it was. To me it was about something. It, once again it was about more than that. And it came alive across the series. And, and that's that's why Alan, when you asked me, you know, which images do we want to start with? I was like, look, it's it's the whole lot. I can't just narrow it down to one particular image because the thing comes alive as a series. Wasn't until I saw the Becker's work and then threw away everything that, that wasn't serialized that this whole SALT series started coming to life. God, this has been a
0: really, really informative uh, hour or so. and. Uh, Want to thank both of you so much for having us over uh, to see the show. Uh, Again, the show opens up at the Robert Mann Gallery and uh, tonight, which is February 1st and runs through April 7th, 2018. If you're in the New York area, uh, come on down to West 26th Street and take a look at it. The pictures are magnificent. Uh, There's a lot of great work that goes through this gallery. Robert Mann, thank you so much for hosting us. And Murray Fredericks, thank you so much for
1: giving us a tour of your work. Thank you, thanks for the opportunity, guys, thank you.
0: And, Murray, if people want to see more of your work, they should go to where?
1: MurrayFredricks.com.au.
0: Okay. And also Robert Mann Gallery to Robert see. Robert Mann Gallery or RobertMann.com. All right. And that's to see Murray's work as well as a lot of other very good photographers. All right. Coming up next, we're going to be speaking with Hillary Dunning and Tim Couch, the two winners of our Canon Sweepstakes Giveaway. Stay tuned. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at B H Photo Video hashtag B H Photo Podcast. Okay, we are now here with Hillary Dunning of Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, and Hillary is the winner of the Canon EOS 80D with a 50 millimeter 1.8 lens. Congrats, Hillary!
5: Thank you. I'm so excited, like so excited. So thank you.
0: So, what was your what was your feeling when you uh, found out that, that you were the winner?
5: Disbelief. <laughs> I was, like, I, <laughs> like I basically dropped my phone. I was just like, because I had seen it on um, Facebook as the announcement, so that I was just like, what? Like this isn't real.
0: Oh, so that's oh oh wow. So you saw it on Facebook. That's cool. That's really interesting. Okay.
2: And and do you know BH Prior? Do you follow BH? Um And uh, how about the podcast? And okay I do follow honest. B&H. <laughs> yeah.
5: um, I follow it on social media more so than the podcast. So mm-hmm. I was excited when I heard that you guys do have a podcast and found out through the contest and started listening. And I plan to continue to listen, which is really cool.
0: Where, where's Chambersburg? But I'm pretty familiar with Pennsylvania. Where are you located? Where's
5: that? Um, it is south of Harrisburg.
2: Ah, okay. All right. So, Hillary, what camera did you have before this?
5: Uh, The camera that I had prior to this was a Nikon 1 Mm -hmm. J5 mirrorless. Oh,
0: wow. Okay. Oh, so this is a big change in uh, in image quality, I mean, as far as uh, the kind of pictures you're beginning. Are you a uh, amateur, professional, semi-pro enthusiast? How would you classify yourself?
5: I would say an enthusiast slash amateur. And so I've really gotten into photography a lot these past six months and so it was good timing because kind of extended my life on the j5 and was actually looking to upgrade this year so it was a really weird coincidence
0: life oh, is good great. sometimes yeah. that's terrific yeah
5: yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what do you like <laughs> yes
2: what what do you normally shoot uh what kinds of photos and and what do you think you'll uh, expand into now that you have uh an upgraded gear
5: I typically shoot a lot of landscapes um, in nature. I actually work within walking distance of a national park, which is incredible. Um, So I'll go during lunch a lot and shoot that. And then there's a lot of state forest by us. So um, a lot of hiking on the weekends and just capturing, you know, those kinds of adventures. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: And this, this camera came with a 50 millimeter lens. Is that something you, you normally shoot with, or do you like to do wide angles, uh, telephoto? What's your choice?
5: Um, I, I do like wide angles, but I was excited that it came with the 50 millimeter because I'm really interested to start getting into portraits and that sort of thing. So it was perfect.
0: That's okay. great. So uh, one last, what's your favorite photography podcast? Just curious. <laughs> <laughs> that was a cheap shot,
2: huh? <laughs> yeah, <that's great. laughs> Don't answer that. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> it's yours. <laughs>
5: it is yours because
0: well, have had you a had co- a chance to go back to any of our older shows and if, if so, uh, which ones appealed to you? Just curious.
5: Um, well, I'm rec- I just listened to um, your most recent one which I found fantastic which was about the landscape on oh, um, yeah, photography. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really enjoyed that and the technology, but then the one that really caught my eye was, um, about the photographer making a difference. a
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. photographer make a difference. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Allison, yeah. Allison right. Yeah. She's wonderful. Uh, okay. All right. Uh, that's really it. Is there anything else you wanted to mention or, or throw in? Feel free.
5: Oh, I just wanted to say thank you again for, um, you know, the camera and lens and for, uh, letting me share a little bit about myself today.
0: It's our, yeah, pleasure. it's our pleasure. And listen, if you're ever in town, give us a holler and we'll give you the $5 tour of the whole facility.
5: <laughs> awesome. Thanks, guys.
0: All right. All right, Hillary. Thank you so much. Hillary, thank you so much and congratulations again. And joining us now is Tim Couch of Austin, Texas. And Tim is the grand prize winner of the Canon EOS 5D Mark IV with a 50 millimeter 1.8 lens. Congrats, Tim. Thank you. Thank you, guys. How'd you find out you were the winner?
4: Um, I got off work and came home and I got an email. (laughs) Email from Twitter that I um, won through Twitter and it was awesome, I couldn't believe it.
0: Can Can you demonstrate the little dance you did when you found out you won the camera? I know it's. I
4: was. <laughs> my face was beet red. I was so excited. I had the best day at work. The next day.
0: <laughs> That's very cool. Are you? Uh, so tell me. Tell us about the kind of photography you do. Are you a, uh, a professional, enthusiast, amateur? Where, where would you place yourself?
4: Um, I place myself kind of a semi-pro. Okay. Um, I've done professional photography. Uh, come out of retirement. <laughs> um, once coming out of retirement, I was working uh for Varlo Magazine under Rachel Varla, which was an awesome dream come true, doing a uh, little sports photography, uh, a lot of concert photography, um, a lot of reviews and write-ups and things like that. It was tons of fun. Um, recently, I've also been doing uh, real estate and vacation rental property photography.
0: Cool. You're mm-hmm. actually earning a dollar with your camera. That's good stuff. Yeah. Are you, are you I tr- a Canon shooter, by the way? Just curious.
4: Yeah. Um, I actually collect Canon cameras. I've got all the way back from... Uh, all the way from Pelix's, all the way up to my current use of a 7D, and now I got the 5D Mark IV to put into it as well for my collection.
2: Ooh. <laughs> well, you, you have too many cameras. You gotta send, you gotta send that back. <laughs> you,
0: you have a yeah, yeah, the Pellex too. I'm impressed by that. That's that's for those who don't know, the Pellex is a was a, a Canon film camera that uh, had a fixed mirror, and the image went right. through. It was a semi-transparent mirror, so rather than waste time yeah. having the mirror going up and down, the light went right through it, and it was you're able to get ten frames a second out of it. it was considered their sports camera, uh, but you lost about yeah. two stops of light looking through the mirror or something <laughs> like that. But that's pretty cool.
4: It's an awesome camera. I love using it.
0: That's great. O- that's great. Cool.
2: All right, so uh, you think you're going to be up in your game a little bit now that you have this? you Are going to work more, or is it just going to go into the the collection with the rest?
4: uh, No, I'm actually building a magazine, a webzine, with uh, my wife and some friends of mine. Uh, It's going to be called Teardrop Magazine. Okay. Uh, We've already photographed um, a boxing event uh, two weeks ago for a charity boxing event uh, from True South Charity, which is to help uh, out-of-work tattoo artists get um, medical relief funding. It's called Tattooed Gloves, where it's a tattoo artist versus a tattoo artist boxing for charity. That's great. Wow. (laughs) That's uh, very cool. I can
2: honestly say that's the first time I've ever heard of such a thing. Yeah. I look (laughs) look forward to seeing those photos. (laughs) Sounds good, That's great. That's good. Good stuff. All right. Well, listen, make sure you uh, you keep us in touch with that, all right? Stay in touch and let us know how how things go with that and uh, send us some photos, you know?
4: Yeah, as soon as um, as soon as it gets here, we're gonna do it uh, like a unwrapping video, and I'll send you guys a link to that. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> that'd
2: be
0: fantastic. All right, so we're gonna. Uh, well, and by the way, hey Tim, I'm missing my car keys. Check inside the box when you get it, would you please?
4: Oh, I definitely will. All right.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Hey Tim, thank you so much. Congratulations again. You are the grand prize winner. That is pretty cool stuff. And uh, again, keep in touch. Let us uh, see some of the pics you've been taking with your camera. All right. Uh, Well, yes. Okay. Take care. Congratulations.
4: Thank you, guys.
0: Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Anyway, that is a wrap of another show. On behalf of Jason Tables, John Harris, and myself, thank you so much for joining us today.